Welcome to Talking Precision Medicine, the podcast in which we discuss the future of healthcare and health technology and how advances in data and data science are fueling the next industrial revolution. In this episode 28, our host and Genialis CEO, Rafael Rosengarten, spotlights Vibe Bio. Vibe Bio is a new biotech aiming to disrupt how we finance drug development through stakeholder communities and cryptocurrency, starting in the rare disease arena. Our guest is Alok Tai, co-founder and CEO of Vibe. Alok is a successful serial entrepreneur and a rare disease community member. Come on in and have a listen. Hey, everybody. This is Rafael Rosengarten, CEO of Genialis. Thank you for joining us today for Talking Precision Medicine. My guest is Alok Tai, CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibebio is doing some amazing stuff in the rare disease space around community building and bringing the resources to bear for drug development for diseases that otherwise don't get the attention they deserve. But don't take it from me. Alok, thank you for joining me. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, but tell us about Vibebio. Yeah, for sure. So um, just a little bit about myself, I guess, for your audience. You know, I'm a scientist, spent about 15 years at the bench doing research, undergrad, PhD, and postdoc, then caught the software bug and spent a bunch of time building software companies focused on the life sciences industry. Those companies have raised over $100 million in venture capital, have a few hundred employees, and are doing pretty pretty well. And then uh, started Vibebio last year. I'll get into the details about sort of the, the motivation in a little bit, but you know, really excited to start Vibe with my co-founder, Josh Foreman. Um, Vibebio is a biotech company. Our mission is to find every cure for every community. And the way we do that is that we are building a community of patients, scientists, and partners that help identify and vet treatments, initially focused in the rare disease space. We then actually fund the drug development work through cryptocurrency token sales. And so our mission came about uh, in part because when you look at the experience that patients have when they have a child or a loved one with a rare disease, oftentimes they're told by their loved one's physician that the disease, though well-known, has no treatment out there. And for many parents, as a consequence, it's a fairly lonely and difficult time where your first choice is to try and beg biotech and pharma companies to work on your disease. For obvious reasons, that often doesn't uh, go as planned. And as a result, parents are relegated to the generosity of billionaires or running a bunch of bake sales. And so Vibebio believes that there's a better option. And so we're building this community of patients, scientists, and partners in order to help put the power back in the hands of patients uh, in terms of drug development. Wow. That is indeed an audacious goal, a big one, and every cure for every community. You said you're starting a rare disease. So what exactly is the problem you're aiming to solve? Um, How would you distill it down? It seems like everything's very fragmented. So, So how do you identify the initial photon to address? Well, you know, I think the rare disease space is an important one in part because it affects one in 10 Americans. Further, as we start to look at some of these larger, more historically considered monolithic diseases like cancer, IBD, diabetes, et cetera, we see that they are actually not one big disease, but actually are composed of dozens, if not hundreds of individual smaller diseases. So I think we're seeing a world where through more precise understanding of the origins of a disease along with the ability to test and diagnose more effectively, like with genomic sequencing, we're seeing these subpopulations and communities form both around individual diseases as well as within a given larger scale disease. So I think that's the first macro trend we have to be keeping in mind. 
The second, I think, issue that often emerges is that when you start to sub-segment these individual diseases or look at rare diseases, they just tend to be lesser known and have smaller patient populations than the larger disease that we mentioned earlier, as an example. And so there just ends up becoming less focus from biotech and pharma companies, grant-making institutions like the NIH and the FDA, et cetera. And as a consequence, the lack of infrastructure and focus in those spaces, along with the lack of aligned distribution and channels for uh, bringing those medicines to patients, creates a, a bit of a, um, a desert, if you will, mm -hmm. in terms of the innovation landscape. So these are some of the challenges that we've seen in the rare disease space, but need to figure out an approach by which we can actually start to scale and develop these treatments more sustainably. If you actually look at the 13,000 plus diseases that are known out there, about 10,000 of them are actually rare diseases. Mm -hmm. In addition, of those rare diseases, only 5% actually have a known treatment today. So there's a lot of work to be done, and that's why we're, one of the reasons why we're really focused uh, on this space overall. Um, I have kind of two questions. The first, and you can choose to answer them in, in either order. Is there a first disease, one disease that you're starting with as, say, your beachhead? And then the second question is a bit more generally, going back to the, what you just laid out, do you have, at least in your mind's eye, a roadmap of, of how to begin? Sort of how do you tackle the chicken and egg of community building and finding a cause, finding a cure, and then getting the damn thing financed to boot and, and developed? Yeah. So we're really excited that as part of our launch uh, a few months ago, we announced several partnerships with exciting institutions focused on different rare diseases in the broader space. One of them I can certainly highlight is a partnership we struck with Chelsea's Hope which is a patient advocacy group focused on a rare, fatal neurodegenerative disease called Lafora disease. This is a terrible disease where these glycogen bodies build up in the brain and result in seizures, paralysis, and unfortunately, death. Uh, most of the children who uh, have uh, this mutation in this specific gene, unfortunately, end up passing within about a handful of years of diagnosis. And so I think this is a great example of a circumstance where we can be a really exciting partner for Chelsea's Hope and other uh, rare disease communities where this disease has actually been known for decades. Mm -hmm. It was actually first posited about a hundred years ago by a scientist named Lafora. Mm -hmm. The challenge, however, is that despite the extensive work of the patient community in the broader scientific world, several treatments have been identified, but none have had either the focus or the capital required to be able to get into a clinical trial. And so I think it was this good example where Vibe has now partnered with Chelsea's Hope to be able to bring in existing treatments and in-license them that have already been identified mm -hmm. as promising and be able to then advance them and fund them through our cryptocurrency token sale mechanism to advance them into a clinical trial. So we're really excited about this overall approach and see it as one where we can empower patients to be in the driver's seat of drug development and truly have unprecedented ownership of the process as a whole. No, it makes a, makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes sense, but it's also mind-blowingly novel and, and refreshing. Uh, having maybe not done enough homework, I actually didn't see the crypto angle coming in. It, it's eye-opening. So I'd like to, to dive into that, even though it's maybe a little bit off schedule. How do you mm -hmm. envision issuing the tokens? Will the tokens be on sort of a per drug or disease or community basis? Or will Vibe Bio have a singular token that you then use across all your programs? Um, how do you see yeah. that working? Awesome question. We've examined this structure in many different angles for quite a while now. The approach that we're taking is to have one single token called the Vibe token. It's a governance token that's on Ethereum. It's an ERC-20. 
And that token is what we use to help moderate the activities of the overall community. Patients and scientists are granted that token for free. And we then also sell a small portion of those tokens to external investors to build up a balance sheet for the community. It's from those funds that the community can then vote to approve the release of that treasury to specific drug development activities. And so we see the token as a really unique approach in part because it allows us to bring a completely new source of capital to the table beyond billionaires and bake sales. Mm -hmm. Second is that when you look at the current biotech venture capital landscape today, in 2022, there will probably be at most maybe $700 million that goes into seed and series A stage rare disease biotechs. Right. So we're able to bring a completely new source of capital that's also highly liquid that allows us, we think, to be able to open the aperture on the types of diseases that we can pursue. And you know, most importantly, as I alluded to earlier, by providing patients with a seat at the table in terms of putting forth proposals of drugs to pursue and giving them the opportunity to, to hear their voices on which drugs we should be developing, mm-hmm. I think we truly are giving them this level of unprecedented ownership of the process that unfortunately they currently lack in today's environment. Mm-hmm. And and do you see the proceeds going also to preclinical R&D? Like you said, many of these diseases, most of them don't have a known treatment, right? So obviously you could busy yourself probably for the rest of your career trying to develop drugs that we do know about, but that does leave a lot left on the table. So do you envision also funding some of that that early stage research, whether it's trio analysis and population level sequencing or or maybe more of a Perlaro approach with drug repurposing in, in lab models and that sort of thing? Well, you know, our approach is intended to be scalable and extensible to a variety of modalities and disease areas. Our goal is to empower the community themselves to help identify those promising treatments and to Mm -hmm. be the ones who approve the release of funds to them. Mm -hmm. We do bring experts to the table to help evaluate and diligence them such that we make sure we're making good scientific decisions. But we truly want to be able to create an approach that can extend to all these uh, domains. So in the case of Lafora, as an example, we've looked at RNA-type medicines. We looked at small molecules. We, we're now really excited about large molecules and biologics, specifically mm-hmm. in this space. So we've seen a, a variety of them. Some of the programs we're really excited about are those that we can take from preclinical proof of concept into early clinical proof of concept. If you take a step back and look at the broader drug development landscape, one of the common challenges that emerges is that when you've identified a key mechanism of action and a high potential medicine, it's often possible to get it to the point where you show that it works in a Petri dish or that it works in in an animal model. But oftentimes you need 10 times as much capital and a different Mm -hmm. set of expertise to get into a clinical trial. That's where many of those high uh, potential uh, drugs often sit on a shelf. Mm -hmm. So some of these patient communities that we're interacting with are coming to us with these medicines that have already shown some interesting data uh, with the opportunity for us to in-license them and advance them into a clinical trial. Got it. So I want to get back into this, both the the technical nitty-gritty of, of how you're building. Well, it seems like there are a lot of things you have to build. You have to build the communities. You have to build the blockchain and the tokens, the various advisory boards and expertise and so forth. But let's start at the beginning. How did you kind of get back into biotech from software? How did you get back to this um, from where you were? Yeah, As I mentioned, I had spent about a decade and a half as a scientist and then a bunch of time building software companies focused on the life sciences industry. And so I'd seen from the inside out across just about every function of the life sciences industry, how they operate and the types of tools and approaches they use. 
but as life does, uh, my family was thrown a curveball last year where though uh, my wife and I were fortunate enough to have our first child, though the pregnancy went okay, unfortunately, our daughter was born very sick and spent a long time in the hospital. One of the hardest parts about that experience was that the diseases that she had were common. The biology was well understood, but unfortunately, there were no dedicated therapeutic options available to her. And as a consequence, she spent a long time suffering. I'm sure you can appreciate that having a kid is having a is a life-changing experience, but having one who's sick at birth, even more so. Further, when we were sitting in the NICU, there were many other children and families in the bays all around us. And we started to build this community and set of relationships with all of them. And there ended up becoming one theme that often tied us all together. We all had tremendous hope that a treatment could be found for our child, but oftentimes the gap was being able to get it into a clinical trial. And so it was that experience, both with my own daughter, along with the learnings from across that broader uh, community in the NICU, that highlighted the challenge is not finding a potential treatment, it's funding it. And so that's what brought me to become maniacal about trying to solve this problem. We examined many different approaches and ultimately landed on a DAO and crypto as the right answer. It gave us, again, the opportunity to extend this community infinitely to the 10,000 plus rare diseases that are out there. Second, it gave us a completely new source of capital in crypto that was looking for high potential projects that was completely different than the existing source of capital available today. And so that's what led us down this approach and um, to, to Vibe Bio today. And are, are Vibe coins available for purchase now, just out of curiosity? They're not available yet. You know, as a few months ago, when we did our public launch, we announced a round of $12 million led by initialized capital, along mm-hmm. with a set of prominent biotech, crypto, and tech um, investors and VCs. We're really excited to have uh, a long-term thinking, you know, high uh, success group uh, in our corner, but intend to do a, a broader launch of our token and sale uh, in 2023. Got it. So ICO is coming. Uh, also, as someone who's you know goes through and is going through fundraising, it's tough enough to bring together the right investors for a kind of we'll call it a typical bio meets tech intersection. You you seem to have added some layers of complexity. <laughs> you know, I say there's so much excitement in the crypto space and in the biotech space. Independently, mm-hmm. we were certainly a breath of fresh air for many individual investors and institutions who had heard everything about AI and biotech and drug discovery or mm-hmm. vertical SaaS as an example. And so I think what we're starting to show is that there's this unique approach by which these two worlds can come together, mm-hmm. that it makes sense to do so, and that we're able to do something that the conventional industry um, isn't able to access. Yeah. So so I kind of posited that, that there's a lot of building to be done. There, there are a lot of different moving parts. Talk to me a little bit about how you started out building the team at Vibio and what are the what are the kind of core functions that you need to solve for? And then how do those interact with each other? Well, you know, maybe if we take a step back, one of the questions you sort of posed or and topics you opined about earlier are the different components that we have to build as an organization to be successful. You know, both Josh and I were very eyes wide open about the components that are required to be successful at drug development, much less drug development plus Web3. But what we realized is that at the end of the day, our organization is focused on developing medicines, and we measure ourselves by the safety and speed with which we bring these medicines to market. So we started initially 
looking at different patient communities uh, that we could help, candidate medicines that we needed to potentially in-license and work on, and use that as the core of our organization and the first place to start. What we realize is that if we truly are able to identify and advance medicine successfully, then patient communities and the broader drug development ecosystem would be interested in collaborating because they too want to be part of that mix. And as those communities formed, what Web3 has shown is that the more vibrant and dedicated your community, the more capital that's available to it. And I think that's what we've started to systematically prove. We can identify and advance high potential medicines. We can start to build a community of patients, scientists, and partners. And we've been able to already show that we can start to raise capital through this token-based mechanism to invest in these high potential programs. So we tried to take a fairly systematic stepwise approach to developing our, our business model. And I think the next you know, two to three years are gonna be particularly telling to ensure that these medicines actually do get to the next inflection point, mm-hmm. but also that at some point there will hopefully be either a partner who will take the baton to the next step of the drug development process, or we'll have the opportunity to be able to register them for approval and get them to patients. So that's, I think the approach we've taken and kind of the mindset we've had. Now, I think your question was specifically around team. And I wanted to at least highlight kind of the, the broader corporate structure and some of the, the pieces that are at the table uh, that we need to be world-class at. Team is another really interesting part of this because it has not only a skill set related focus, but also a cultural one. And it's safe to say that the crypto cultures and the biotech cultures tend to be fairly different. But we were somewhat fortunate that, you know, since Josh and I were sort of serial entrepreneurs and have sort of built teams successfully previously. Mm-hmm. We started out being very explicit with ourselves and everyone we talked to about who we are and what mattered to us. I described VibeBio and our team as a blue collar team. We're a team that is highly mission driven. We're low ego. We roll up our sleeves and do the work. And lastly, we never forget the humanity of the work that we're trying to do. Those characteristics are what we vet every teammate for, whether it be from a software engineer working on smart contracts to a chief medical officer who's going to help us with our first set of clinical trials. That thesis of being a blue-collar team is what ties us together, and we start to build uh, with that at its core. I like the that you're starting from a point of kind of culture and, and values and sort of, I guess, screening for that first. That's the kind of thing you hear a lot about or hear a lot of lip service paid to. But in my experience, there are those who live it and, and those who just blog about it. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Having now built two software companies previously, and then now this is my first sort of pure play biotech yeah. company. It's interesting to sort of see the dogma as well as the best practices that exist on either side of that fence. I think you see a lot of discussion and thought leadership on uh, hiring and culture, especially in the tech world, mm-hmm. and a lot less in the biotech world, although it's increasing. So I think there's just you know, an interesting arbitrage opportunity, if you will, to bring some of the best practices from other adjacent domains, but mm-hmm. into the biotech space. But curious to hear you know, from your perspective, uh, if, if that resonates or, or what you've seen. No, absolutely. And you know, Jeannie Alice works in the biotech space, but we come from software roots as well. And on the one hand, you know, the dogma is that you need to kind of start with your culture and build the company around your culture. And, you know, they say sometimes culture is the first 10 people you hire, et cetera, right? In our case, 
defining our core values has actually been an evolution. It's been a process with progress, but our core values today are the distillation of what we started with. So we started with a what I guess would be a wider net, and it's taken us some years to really and truly understand how to articulate the, the kernel of those. But but I think that from day one, we started to build a company that was a great company first and the great business would follow. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to describe it. And I think independent of the industry that you're in or, or your goals as an organization, that sounds like yeah. uh, you know having the right people is going to be important yeah. no matter what. Well, so you, you've mentioned Josh, tell us about your co-founder and, and then I want to hear more about your, your journeys through software. Sure. So, you know, Josh um, is our, my co-founder and, and chief product officer at Vibe. You know, Josh's background um, uh, began sort of in computer science at a Harvard, spent some time as a software engineer, and then and was also part of the founding period of the Broad Institute um, here in Boston. Uh, he started his PhD in computational biology at Princeton, but left early to start a software company um, that was backed by Sequoia. That uh, enterprise SaaS company ultimately was acquired. Um, he then went to start another uh, medical device company, uh, which uh, was also, I think, acquired and currently is doing quite well. And then sort of as an interim stint post-startups, uh, spent a little bit of time at Wayfair uh, leading a 100-person uh, sort of engineering and product team. Uh, you know, as most of us who are entrepreneurs at heart, you know, he felt pretty excited to get back into the game. And it just so happened it was around the time when my daughter was ill and I was looking for some advice and feedback on uh, this broader project and direction. And so, you know, we had known each other for about half a dozen years at that point and uh, kind of resonated around this approach and, and sort of went from there. Got it. So he comes from software. You do too. Tell us a little bit more specifically, what were your other companies? What did they do? You know, what, what were some of the kind of core lessons you took away from scaling and making successful the, these software companies? Sure. Well, you know, I'll, I'll share with you sort of the, the institutions and then some of the, maybe the broader high-level takeaways from, from that broader experience. The companies I helped start were Prescouter and TetraScience. And I also started and ran the life sciences division at Ignite, um, which is a big mm-hmm. software company based in California. And so from those three separate experiences, you know, there's a lot of takeaways I think one can have. You mentioned people earlier, right? Trying to build the right team and make sure you have alignment around culture and values. Also making sure that you get the right types of people for the stage of your organization, mm-hmm. right? I think that's another uh, key component. One of the things I'd also say I learned was that when it comes to building a company or a project or a DAO, you'll always have opportunities to go into different directions. And as a leader, uh, it's your responsibility to help focus the organization and especially focus it on the original vision that you had. And so I think that was another piece of the equation I'd say I learned was to sort of have self-confidence in the vision that we set out for and to sort of be maniacally focused on that in everything that we do. Uh, you know, I think the, the last part I'd also highlight would be that these things take time, mm-hmm. whether it was Ignite or Prescutter or otherwise, you know, these are multi-year type investments and you have to really be thinking for the long haul. It's a very orthogonal perspective to the traditional um, crypto domain where you mm-hmm. are looking more on the order of days and weeks to be able to make a return. I think in our case, we're very much long-term focused as an organization, as a project, and have been both recruiting people and partners who think in a similar way. So you mentioned Josh as chief product officer. Help me understand, how do you think about products? So what are the products at Vibe Bio? Are they the drug yeah. programs? Or I mean... 
it seems like you could have technology products, but also, I don't want to say softer, but, but soft tech products. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of, I think you're, you're heading in the right direction there. We think we've got two different types of products, one that's software and the other that's medicines effectively, or, or a process to develop medicines. On the former, when it comes to bringing together this community of patients, scientists, and partners, we recognize that many of these people are not Web3 natives. A lot of the technology out there, whether it be wallets and governance software used in the, in the crypto domain, is geared mostly to Web3 native and tech native individuals. So we're one, building a user-friendly, we think one of the, for the first time in this space, user-friendly, easy to engage with governance and identi identity software platform for Vibe such that any patient community, any scientist can come in and immediately start to participate in the broader community. That's number one. The other component of it is that as we aspire to find every cure for every community, we really need to have deep domain experts to help us and identify these promising treatments. Unfortunately, these are skills and experiences that you just don't get in everyday walks of life. Mm -hmm. And so being able to have individuals identify their own backgrounds, be able to receive credit for the work that they do, as well as the contributions they make to the, some of these programs, as well as identify their participation right in the overall project is really important. Mm -hmm. So we're really going to pioneer, I think, a new category in the, in the Web3 space where we try to bring this little identity, credentials, and accomplishments onto the blockchain such that individuals are recognized for their historical and upcoming works, but also can port that to different environments over time um, as they progress. So that's one piece of the software standpoint. The second is that once the community approves funds to be released for drug development, we do have a, a process and a team that we're building on the drug development side to actually advance these candidate medicines. And so that becomes another really exciting, uh, I think, direction and another product, if you will, mm -hmm. where it's both the team and the experience, but also the resulting composition of matter, if you will, mm -hmm. that is also a product. Unlike a traditional uh, company, we do have two different types of products, but I think if we're able to sort of show our ability to make really well-used software that is able to, to generate funds through our token sales, and then also resulting successful medicines at the, on the back end, I think we'll have um, truly proven out this overall approach. That makes sense. And, and that, that was along the lines I was thinking, but thank you for making it so vivid and clear. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a little curious how you're thinking about both the, the kind of nuts and bolts of community releasing funds right now, and I'm sure you've, you've got this nailed down, but if there's a single vibe coin, are there certain amounts that are accessible to one community and certain amounts accessible to another? Mm -hmm. And again, if once you've had an ICO and, and let's say retail investors, if that's what you call folks like myself who might come buy your coin, do we get to say which community we want to buy for? Or does that go into a general kitty or does it get distributed pro rata? Yeah. How are you thinking about those kinds of mechanical issues with the coin? Awesome. Yeah. It's a wonderful question and something we've thought deeply about over the past year plus. When you look at the different ways in which tokens can be applied to this domain, it's become clear to me that if you look at drug development specifically at a given program level, there is a measurable amount of risk on a given individual single drug program. So oftentimes, whether you're a venture capital firm or a biotech, you end up with a portfolio. You have multiple different drug programs that you're investing in, mm -hmm. such that Eventually, if you do your job right, at least one or two of those uh, that portfolio will be successful, 
to then mm-hmm. recoup the investments on the others that didn't work. So that's why we took the approach by which we have a single token to raise capital and to mediate the actions of the organization. And then dollars are then allocated to individual programs such that that token is reflected by a portfolio of different medicines that are being pursued. Mm-hmm. So the approach that we've taken in addition is to also ensure that when you provide this level of unprecedented ownership uh, in drug development to patient communities, it is possible that you might end up going in a different direction that doesn't have necessarily the greatest science, but might just be something that the communities are passionate about. So what, we, what we've done is structured an approach by which any token holder can put forth a proposal around a drug development project. But then we have a committee of drug development experts that mm-hmm. range from toxicology and pharmacology to CMC to regulatory, who then rank and stack those proposals based on their scientific feasibility, clinical and safety, et cetera, et cetera. With that resulting stack, the community is then empowered to then release funds from the treasury to those proposals starting top down. So what it allows us to do is ensure that patients are ultimately part of the mix in terms of identifying candidate medicines. Mm -hmm. They're also part of the mix in terms of releasing funds and allocating capital. But you do have dispassionate drug development experts who are helping to assess the quality and feasibility of those Mm -hmm. programs in the middle. Got it. So I'm learning a lot about clinical trials in my work. We, my company works on developing AI models that can serve as clinical biomarkers, um, but we mm-hmm. work in kind of the big and, and relatively well-funded space of oncology primarily, because there, is a, there are a lot of clinical trials, a lot of clinical trial data. In rare diseases, what does a typical clinical trial journey look like for a drug, or is there even such a thing as a typical journey? How many patients do you need to be able to get into that phase one trial? Can it just be one? Does it, you know, does it have to be enough to draw a straight line to make it significant? Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's an awesome question. You know, at some point, we'd love to, to pick your brain about what you've seen um, on that front uh, in terms of biomarkers, because uh, I was actually just having a chat with a patient community about this topic earlier today, where one of the common challenges in rare diseases is that when you only have 5% of diseases having a treatment today, that means 95% don't have a treatment or a clinically validated biomarker. Mm-hmm. So biomarkers are a huge challenge that exists in this space. Further, from a trial perspective to your earlier point, you also have a distribution of what rare means. In the world of the FDA, a rare disease is classified as a disease that has less than 200,000 patients in the United States. Mm-hmm. So you could have diseases like, say, hemophilia or sickle cell that are on the larger end of that spectrum to diseases like HIF-1A, which actually has a few hundred patients mm-hmm. um, known globally for their disease. And I think you're going to see a very different um, clinical trial methodology across Mm -hmm. that spectrum. Directly speaking, in in terms of what we've been seeing in the neurodevelopmental, neurodegenerative, pediatric oncology spaces, is that oftentimes you're running a preclinical set of analyses on a given on on a NCE, showing that it's both safe and has preclinical proof of concept. And then oftentimes that initial trial is not just purely a phase one, but actually is more like a phase one, phase two combined trial with mm-hmm. anywhere between a handful to maybe a dozen or so patients first to be able to show that the drug is safe initially, then to help you identify the right dose and also be able to show some initial proof point that it works in that population. Mm-hmm. We've definitely heard of certain drugs that have been approved after that dozen patient study but usually you end up doing a larger trial, a more proper phase three for the registration thereafter. 
And again, mm-hmm. all of that is sort of dependent on the indication, the subpopulation, the standard of care, all that sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that phase one, phase two, plus phase three feels like a fairly common methodology, although we'd love to see if we can make it faster and less expensive in many cases. Right. Part of where I was going with that is, you know, one of the, the challenging things in drug development can sometimes be just getting the trial together, right? So even once you've got the funds... Uh-huh. But it also occurs to me, if you do your job right, and Vibio is, in fact, this beacon for rare disease communities, then you will have gone a good way, part of the way to solving that problem as well. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And that was one of the inspirations for our current model. When you partner directly with patient communities, those communities and those parents and those patients have real superpowers, right? They're the ones who you want to collaborate with when it comes to enrolling in your trial, getting enrollment for your trial. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who can help inform the right types of clinical protocols and endpoints that are relevant to them as families. And then lastly, most importantly, they also have a tremendous collaboration with regulatory authorities because they represent the citizens within those Mm -hmm. different geographies. And so I think we've seen time and time again, whether it's ALS or DMD, the importance that patient communities have when it comes to engaging with the FDA, the EMA, and other authorities. So we Mm -hmm. very much see that partnership as being a critical facet of the VIBE model, and also really important to getting more of these medicines to patients. What are you seeing uh, or reading about or hearing about from communities on the gene editing front? This is one of the exciting things to me, and you know, not all rare diseases, but many are genetic and therefore may have a genetic cure. Uh-huh. Is, is that sure. something that's also an, an enthusiasm that's reflected in the communities? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we've certainly seen a lot of excitement about, let's just call it gene therapies and gene editing as a whole. Mm-hmm. If you rewind, say, four to five years ago, as Luxterno was starting to come to the forefront and a set of other gene therapies like you know, Zolgensma was getting mm-hmm. to phase three, et cetera, you start to see a lot of patient communities have invested in gene therapies, whether it be in academic environments or in biotechs. But one of the challenges that's emerged recently has been that the cost of developing those medicines and the cost of the therapeutic combined with the safety-related questions that often emerge and the fact that you can only dose a patient once, usually with a virus-based vector, has created a fair bit of questions and concerns right, for that broader community. So we've seen a fair bit of gene therapy projects out there that unfortunately were no longer a priority for their home institution and are looking for sort of a venue to be able to advance. So I think there still is a lot of excitement and interest in the gene editing and the gene therapy space broadly, but I think what's likely to be needed is greater technology and infrastructure on the safety and immune tolerance of those programs, decreases in the cost to manufacture those materials and and, and therapies. And then lastly is I think, yeah, uh, better better sort of monitoring of the resulting endpoints as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you administer a medicine to someone who's late in their progression of their disease versus earlier, you see very different sort of manifestations of mm-hmm. the medicine as a result. So those will be just sort of two or three of the things that I've kind of seen. But curious if in the oncology space, if you've seen anything uh, unique there and yeah, if, if, how that's manifested. I think the oncology space is generally really excited by a number of different new drug modalities. And, and you know, this should hold true for all disease areas, depending on what the, the target is and the mechanism of action. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about not just our ability to edit genes, but our ability, for example, to degrade proteins with small chemicals, with, with genetic tags, with all sorts of approaches, with oligonucleotides. 
And this gives us then the ability to hit targets that we used to not be able to, right? Mm. So we'll, we'll see how this plays out. But, you know, in cancer, one of the first known oncogenes was RAS. And 40 years later, we finally have the first approved drug in, in Amgen's Lumacrest to target dysregulated KRAS. You know, so it's been a long time coming, but the chemistry is getting better. And, and I'd like to think that, you know, the winners of the, the AI for you know, novel drug wave will have a lot to say about new molecular modalities going forward also. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that we've also been curious about is to say, one, can we start to rethink our approach in that uh, instead of it always being a small molecule or a biologic, right? Are there Mm -hmm. other interesting modalities out there that could potentially be of impact? Mm -hmm. But also that when you look at some of the pathways that influence cancer and its growth, you end up seeing some pathways that have overlaps with existing rare diseases that are non-oncology related. Mm-hmm. And so is there an interesting sort of pipeline and a product type approach you can take to make sure that you get a treatment for that rare disease, but then the mm-hmm. business model becomes sustainable when it can pivot into an adjacent indication like cancer? Yeah. yeah. And you know, I'm personally a huge fan of the potential of, of drug repurposing. And I feel like there was a bit of kind of hyper excitement or general acceptance that that was a thing that we should be pouring a lot of energy into. And for whatever set of reasons, and I suspect it has to do with just kind of venture economics, it's become a little less fashionable. Mm. You know, it's more, it's a little more complicated than that. Obviously you have things like IP windows and, and market sizes and so forth. Um, but I think there are a lot of different approaches to thinking about molecules that we have, you know, maybe have known safety profiles, um, known mechanism of action. And, you know, coming up with the right repurposing scheme can be really transformational. I mean, I'm thinking about companies like Recursion Pharma, which screen large chemical libraries um, against genetically defined cell lines. Mm-hmm. My friend, uh, you know, Ethan Perlstein and Perlara, which exists as a virtual co, which has done, in my opinion, some of the most impactful work in rare disease on, on really a shoestring, but has engaged with communities, engaged with families, and of one trials, and is, is curing people, mm-hmm. again, through, through these kinds of efforts. So I, I would love to see more of that. And... Yes, it would be great if that same molecule has a big market opportunity in a, in a more populous disease, but I don't think that should be an, a prerequisite for going after it, right? Oh, 100%. And, yeah. and I think the, some of the approaches that you highlighted, like yeast as an example, as a model organism, are great inspirations for the cleverness of scientists and mm-hmm. the, the approach that biology can offer to perhaps more sustainably, scalably identify those opportunities. Because I think the thing about biotech is that we tend to, we focus on large diseases as we should, but I think we assume that we put a large quantity of dollars at very high risk for one program, as an Mm -hmm. example, where I think what Rare is a unique opportunity to do is to say, actually, a more modest sum of capital spread across a much larger number of bets could be, could be an Mm -hmm. equally successful business model that's more repeatable, scalable. And, you know, folks like Ethan and, and others who are doing interesting things in that space to mm-hmm. find those cross correlations more scalably, I think is, is an important piece yeah. of it. And, and while I'm name dropping and just plugging friends shamelessly, I, you know, I also want to point out again, because I, I like to highlight success stories in, in the AI and ML space, you know, Tim Gilliams and the crew at HeelX in the UK, I think are doing great work in Rare using mm-hmm. AI as applied to knowledge graphs to both discover new molecules, but also to find repurposing opportunities. Um, so I just encourage the, you know, the biotech community writ large to continue the, all of the above approaches. And I, I hope, and, and I'm optimistic that Vibe Bio can, 
help be sort of a nucleating agent for for all of these different approaches and find the stuff that's really working. Absolutely. You know, I think we want to empower all those folks who have exciting models, philosophies, technologies to have both access to patients and the capital required to be able to see if those medicines can truly help. And, mm-hmm. you know, our ambition is that if we can truly make it successful with this initial community and this initial group in the rare disease space, mm-hmm. it gives us an approach by which everything we've done is structured in software mm-hmm. and can very easily be replicated for other disease areas mm-hmm. over time. So whether it be oncology, cardiovascular, mm-hmm. um, women's health, infectious disease, et cetera, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to take this broader model and financing approach and start to scale it out. Yeah, I, I think that's important. I mean, where this kind of links up with my vision is that as all medicine becomes more precise and we do use novel biomarkers to figure out what's actually ailing you, it means that the disease communities are going to get chopped up a little bit. Like you said, not all cancer is cancer, right? Like even, even cancer one tissue may come in many, many, many subtypes and each of those subtypes may need a different medicine. And so I, I think this backbone, the software backbone may prove to be essential everywhere for these, we'll call them precision medicine communities or biomarker defined mm. disease communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from the biomarker standpoint, what are some of the interesting data sources that you've been seeing as most impactful, at least in the oncology space? Is it, is it blood tests? Is it CSF? Is it uh, imaging? All the above? Yeah. So, so there've been some cool successes with imaging and imaging is great for a lot of reasons. It's information rich data. Almost everyone who comes through an oncology clinic gets a scan of the, you know, generates an image, right? So it's it's fairly ubiquitous. Um, and we're pretty good at writing algorithms to analyze images, um, you know, to tell apart cats and cars, but also to tell apart tumor from normal and so forth. Um, my company mostly uses omics data, sequencing data of various ohms. You know, the challenge with any precision medicine initiative is it needs to be patient-friendly, right? You need to be able to measure it in patients. And so as much as we'd like to have full omic profiles of everything, you've got to be able to get some tissue from somebody or draw some blood. And, and so, you know, we really think about the biomarker as a, where is the disease and who is it affecting and how likely are you to be able to measure it in certain ways. And then you have to hope the information content is there in the data or engineer the data. So it's there. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, you know, I think one of the things about oncology as well is that depending on the form, you have some element of heterogeneity of mm-hmm. the disease. Right? right. And so I think it's it's interesting to see how biomarkers can be used to better assess right. and evaluate the progress, right? Not just of the, the, the therapeutic, but also of the disease itself, right. right? Yeah, we've done some work with labs involved in the undiagnosed disease network. And, and this is where, and one of these was a rare sarcoma, but there were some of these were non-cancer, right? Hereditary diseases. And here, you know, the biomarker search is a bit different. You're not looking for a signature that holds up over a giant population. Obviously, you've got a mom and a dad and a kid, but we're, we've been able to help build tools to find genetic signatures of splicing defects that probably will serve as biomarkers more generally because they're mechanistic, right? So it doesn't necessarily matter which gene and what disease. If, if this is a mechanism at play, it may be dysregulating something. And so my hope is that by by taking these kind of mechanistic views and, and analyzing data that lets you get at that, again, it becomes more scalable. At least that's the hope. Absolutely. All right. One more question, and, and then I'll let you um, get back to your morning. The, again, this is a, a big project you're taking on. Um, summarize it for us, your vision, rare disease in say 10 years. What, what does it look like when Vibio is a, a huge success 10 years out? How are we doing rare disease different or maybe all disease different? Well, again, you know, our our mission is to find every cure for every community. 
we were looked 10 years out, our hope is that we can build the largest community of patients, scientists, and partners. I think what three has shown is that if you have a, a vibrant, engaged community with a common mission, that you'll have a tremendous amount of capital available to it to invest and own medicines outright in their development. If you have patients and, and doctors and scientists involved in the development of medicine, there's a potential for them also to be the most uh, prolific champions and advocates for it and own the distribution of those medicines. And then ultimately also create the infrastructure and the business process behind it. Mm-hmm. That's what we hope to achieve over that period of time. And so I think enabling communities and patients to be able to have that infrastructure, whether it be capital, expertise for any family and any foundation to find a treatment for the disease they care about, I think is most critical and highly aligned with the vision that we're trying to build towards. And I think one of the outcomes also, if we're successful, is to have as many clinical programs as a a large pharma company, but instead Mm -hmm. are actually both owned and participated and, and supported by the patients directly themselves. So we really hope that we can create this large community and show that this new approach to financing and structuring these organizations allow us to both bring medicines to patients safely and quickly, but also allows us to open the aperture on the types of diseases that we can go after. Wow. This is fantastically exciting. What a time to be alive. (laughs) Ty, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time in the conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Really love what you guys are doing here and hope to keep in touch. Great. Thank you. This has been episode 28 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.